0: From Jeremiah chapter 29, verses four through 14. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take in marriage. Wait. take wives and Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, good morning everyone. I'm Pastor Joey, I was really hoping that stool was going to stay up here so for once you would look up to me like you look up to Pastor Jeff, uh, but it didn't happen. Oh well. You know, about a, a year and a half ago, my wife took a, a part-time job with a national nonprofit based in downtown Indianapolis called College Mentors for Kids. Uh, I hadn't heard uh, of them before, but a friend of ours here at the church works for college mentors and invited Jenna to join the team. Uh, They work to pair college students with the most to give with kids who need it most, underserved elementary kids in in neighborhoods that are kind of in close proximity to to a, a college campus. The the way they operate, their belief is that if they can expose young children to thriving young adults who contribute in positive ways to their communities, they could inspire these young children uh, to make better life choices in middle school and in high school and open up pathways to a better future for them. My wife has kind of been responsible for uh, processing some long-range study data, and she was telling me about a, a little buddy who was growing up just a few blocks from a college campus uh, but neither he nor his parents, his family, had any idea that the college was right there uh, in their neighborhood. Uh, but because of the program that he's part of, he's been paired with a college student on the campus who spends time with him each, each week, who helps him with his homework, who plays with him, who, who gives him a picture of what his uh, future could look like. You could say that, that College Mentors for Kids is designed to tell kids a better story about who they are and who they could become. And it tells them that story in appealing ways through a direct and repeated and and embodied relationship with someone actually living that story. And that better story then gives kids a better future and a better way to act and behave today. One of the things I've learned from this is that the, the decisions we make and the actions we take today depends a lot on the story we think we are in and where we see that story going. That's why we've been in this uh, Flourish series, this Discipleship series, since the beginning of the year. I mean, we took a break around Easter for the last couple of weeks, but we've been talking about faith's vision for discipleship, what it means to fulfill our vision to be informed and winsome ambassadors, ambassadors of Christ in a secular age and to a secular age. We've covered a lot of ground, so if you're just jumping in now, uh, I wouldn't expect you to, to, to catch up right away. But if you, missed, uh, if you missed any of the sermon series, you can feel free to go back and grab individual sermons. Uh, you can go to faithliveitout.org slash sermons to, to find those. Go to the podcast feed. Uh, or at faithliveitout.org slash flourish, you can find a, a written summary of where we've been so far and uh, what we've covered. So, but since we've been on break the last couple of weeks, I'll just recap for all of us to, to kind of get us back into, uh, into the flow of where we've going. We spent the first third of the series talking about what it means to be informed. Informed about the world around us and about ourselves. We've gotten to know the kind of world we live in and the kind of people that we are so that we can talk about the gospel in a way that makes sense, that that, uh, appeals to the world we live in. At Newsflash, it's a secular world out there. And in here. We now live in... The tension of a world where non-belief in God is a live option for all of us. The second third of the series, then, was focused on what it takes to become ambassadors. Now, ambassadors is what we are, but how do we develop as ambassadors? How do we become better ambassadors? How does God form us into the kind of people who aren't just ambassadors in name, but in character, in the way we actually live it out? Uh, And Hint, uh, worship and spiritual disciplines was a big part of it. There's no silver bullet in discipleship. It's all the same stuff that the church has been doing for the last 2,000 years. And again, if you want to go back through in detail what we talked about in those first two movements, faithliveitout.org slash flourish. But in this last third of the discipleship series, uh, we're focusing in this sermon and the next four sermons on what it means to be winsome. We want to be informed and winsome ambassadors. Well, what does it mean to be winsome? And, of course, the ideas of the first two parts and this third part are all pretty tightly woven together uh, because much of what it means to become winsome comes from knowing about the world and developing in character as a better ambassador. But we're going to take the next few weeks to talk about our winsomeness. In other words, what is our posture towards the world around us? Should we be fearful and antagonistic? Should we be withdrawn and aloof? Should we be judgmental and condemning? Or despairing and discouraged? Well, that depends on what story we think we're in. Depends a lot on the story we think we're in. There's a little snippet that often gets quoted by the philosopher Alistair MacIntyre. He says, I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question, of what story or stories do I find myself a part because the decisions we make, the actions we take today, depend on the story we think we're in and where we think that story is going. So how should we posture ourselves to the world? Well, that depends on what story we think we're in. We're not going to know what it means to be winsome until we know what story we're in and until we find a story that gives context and meaning to the way God has called us to relate to the world. That's why we're looking at Jeremiah 29. If you haven't turned there yet, it's on page 780 of the the Black Bible in front of you, or uh, you can just pull up Siri and say, Jeremiah 29, and, and see if you get to the right place. I'll pause so we can hear you do that. Now, this passage, uh, this particular letter, is, is going to get repeated play throughout this last part of the discipleship series, uh, primarily because of the way it's a radical shift in perspective for the nation of Israel. And then the ramifications of this shift echo throughout the New Testament in some other passages that we're going to study. Uh, but for now, let me just put the chapter in context Jeremiah 29, this letter to the exiles, is written just a few years after 3,000 or so of the Jewish elite were exiled to Babylon, uh, the second of three major deportations. Now, I know 3,000 doesn't sound like a large number, but it was the entirety of the royal household, including King Jehoiachin, who had only been in power about three months, uh, all the ruling elite, the artisans... Basically, all the movers and shakers of government, arts, religion, industry, social services, etc. The entire uh, uh, governmental structure was deported all at once. Jeremiah, for reasons we don't really know, but he was able to stay in Jerusalem, which was left more or less intact, but subjugated to Babylon. So he, in Jerusalem, heard From Babylon, uh, that some of the prophets, some of the diviners, uh, the priests who had gone into exile with the exiled community were predicting a short two-year exile before Jehoiachin would be restored to his throne and Babylon overthrown. And this wasn't exactly outside the realm of possibility. There was some significant turmoil within the Babylonian state itself. It was not that stable at this time. Uh, Some even of the Jews who had been exiled had been part of a rebellion. They had incited a revolt. It was put down, but there was enough remaining talk of revolt that perhaps, possibly, this is what the exiles were called to do in Babylon, was revolt and overthrow the Babylonian government. There was enough of the the talk of this that Jeremiah wrote this letter and and, and said, let's take a different perspective. What we have here in Jeremiah 29 is a a paraphrase or maybe a, a condensing of the letter Uh, that he wrote. We read it here in Jeremiah 29 verses 4 through 14. You may have noticed uh, as uh, Maren read it earlier uh, that there's two parts to the letter. Jeremiah begins with some commands, some actions he wants the people to take, and then he follows it up with some context, Uh, a story that gives those commands, that gives those actions uh, validity, believability, plausibility, that gives them a foundation. So we're going to move through this letter and basically those two main movements. First, the commands, then the story that makes sense of them. So first, the commands. Look at verses 5 through 7. Jeremiah commands the people living in exile. Verses 5 through 7, he says, Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Now, I'm not going to take a lot of time digging into these particular commands uh, because Jeff is going to spend a whole sermon in a couple of weeks uh, digging into them. So put a pin in it and, and stay tuned for coming attractions. Uh, he's going to develop a little bit from this idea just how we're supposed to work for the common good of the place we find ourselves. But for now, I just want to point out these commands, each of these, the, these ideas implies a duration of time. None of them can be accomplished in an afternoon. Build, plant, marry, bear, multiply. They all imply a, an extended duration, an extended stay uh, that the, the exiles should invest in the location they find themselves And these actions only make sense if they're within a larger storyline. If they're within a bigger story that gives them some meaning. So let's move to the story half of this letter, the second half of the letter. We briefly covered the commands, but they imply a story that can give context and meaning to them. And the story is found in verses 10 through 14. But before I read it, I want you to remember the story the exiles were living And operating under. It's one chapter earlier, chapter 28. A prophet named Hananiah had prophesied falsely these words recorded in verses 2 through 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years, I will bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. I will also bring back to this place Jeconiah, that's another name for Jehoiachin, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and all the exiles from Judah, who went to Babylon, declares the Lord, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Two years, and we're home free. Two years, and Babylon is done for. That's a good story. It's a hopeful, it's an optimistic, it's an encouraging story, but it's not true. And and to people living under this two years and I'm home again story, building a house doesn't make sense. It'll take you two years to build it. You're not going to live there. Planting a garden doesn't make sense. You get one harvest out of it and then you're gone. Why would you put in the work? Why marry and bear children and raise up sons and daughters in a a world where, I mean, not not the least because you're going to have to move them in a year, but uh, why would you bring people into this kind of world if in two years you're going to be somewhere else, you're going to be back home again? None of the commands that Jeremiah gives make sense under a two years and we're home again story. So Jeremiah offers an alternate justification for how he tells them to live. It's in chapter 29, verses 10 through 14. For thus says the Lord, here's the story, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Notice he doesn't say, I've already broken the yoke of Babylon. He says 70 years. When those 70 years are completed, I will visit you. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. By the way, that's a promise to a nation, not to individuals, but I won't go any any farther into that. Verse 12, "Uh, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. That's the story And it's a little different from the two years and I'm home again story. Jeremiah writes and says, This is more of a 70 years and I will bring your children's children home to a home they've never been. It's a different story. And as I'm sure you remember from your high school English classes, uh, every story has multiple parts to it there's characters, setting, plot, conflict resolution. Uh, Things like that, you know, the characters are the people in the story, the setting is where it takes place, the plot is what moves the story along, the conflict is the problem they're trying to overcome, the resolution is what happens after it's all resolved. So we're going to do a little bit of narrative analysis this morning, which will be fun for me. If I weren't a pastor, I'd probably be an English teacher. So who's the main character in this story that Jeremiah tells in verses 10 through 14? It's a Sunday school answer. God is the main character. God is the main character. Look at verses 10 and 11. Notice how many times God says, "I," and an action. Five times, I will visit you. I will fulfill. I know the plans I have. I will give." God is the main character, and the secondary character is the nation of Israel, the people in captivity. In verses 12 through 14, every time the word you shows up, it's plural. He's saying, you all will call upon me. You all will come and pray to me. You all will seek me. You, collective. You as a whole. In this this letter, Jeremiah is not writing to the main character of the story. He's writing about the main character of the story to these secondary characters who are the recipients of the action of the main character. And the setting is the exile. The exiles, we've said, they're in exiles in Babylon. They're strangers in a strange land. But uh, notice what's said in verse 4, repeated in verse 7, and twice again in verse 14. God says, I have sent you. Uh, They're not there by accident. They're not there because God was asleep. Uh, He has sent them to Babylon. He's the one who has sent his people into exile. He has put them there. And they being out of their home and in exile has created a problem. That's the, the conflict, something that has to be resolved, the problem that has to be overcome. Uh, not least of which is their subjection to foreign rule and foreign domination, but for the people of Israel, everything that's essential to their national identity, uh, you know, the, the fact that they're a nation state, that they have a kingship, that they have an army, that there are national borders, uh, that they have a temple, uh, it's all gone. At least these guys don't have access to it. So what is at risk, uh, besides individual death, is the death of the nation, the loss of their sense of national identity, and the, the potential loss of their place in God's redemptive plan for the entire world. Remember, he had promised them he would make them a blessing and all the world would be blessed through them. How is that going to happen if these other promises of land and future are, are, are gone, So there's a real sense of of loss, of identity, of vocation, of their calling, their role in the world, and why they even exist. So then, of course, that brings us to the plot line. How is this problem going to be resolved? And in verse 10, the first thing we see is that it's not going to be resolved quickly. Seventy years are mentioned. When 70 years are completed for for Babylon, then I will visit you, God, God says. 70 years is what ultimately became the length of the exile, from the, you know, the first sacking of Jerusalem in 605 BC to the decree of Cyrus allowing the people to return to the land in 538 BC, roughly 70 years. Of course, the first readers of this letter would not have known when to start counting, from the first deportation or from their deportation, or does it restart when Jerusalem's destroyed five or six years after this? I don't know. So 70 years is kind of an indefinite amount of time to their reckoning. It gives a little extra force to Jeremiah's admonitions like, hey, build a house. You're going to be here for a couple winters. So this plot is moving along, but it's moving rather slowly until we get to the main action that the main character is going to take. Verse 10, again, God says, I will visit you. I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back To this place, it's repeated in verse 14. I will restore your fortunes. I will gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you. I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. And the motivation is given for God, the main character, in verse 11. Why? Why would God do this? Why would he continue to invest in this people that he's had to punish for their rebellion? Well, verse 11, I know the plans I have for you. Plans for welfare and not for evil, plans to give you a future and a hope. You know, we serve a God who, his plans for his people are not abrogated by their disobedience. He has plans to give them a future, to give them a hope, to give them what they were always intended to have. In the ESV, it's translated as welfare. Uh, but in Hebrew, it's the word we've all heard many times shalom. That word meaning peace, but also meaning more than just peace, meaning uh, security, uh, relational peace, uh, comfort, safety, uh, peace with God, peace with one another, shalom. You know, one way you could think about the, uh, the concept of shalom is with the analogy of harmony. I'm sure many of you remember going to those, uh, those dreaded elementary school music recitals uh, where there's always that that one kid that they can't control who's given a drum. And he just cannot stay in rhythm or on the beat. And the kids are singing or they're, they're playing their recorders or they're doing whatever. And in our family we call it the frog face. Which is where you're sort of like trying through facial expressions to pull the kid into tune. As if what you do to your face would somehow affect how they're playing. And you're, you're kind of like shifting in your seat and you're sort of like come on just a little higher you know uh, if, if you pull them into into harmony really and it's just not happening and it's hard to sit still with that much discord and disharmony happening right in front of you now imagine as you're sitting there that overactive kid with the drum like starts to fall into rhythm and the instrumentalists or the vocalists somehow like start to come into tune and then, and then you realize, that's an actual song that they're singing, and, uh, and I like it. And it, it starts to move you, and, and you go from that like, frog face thing to, to sort of sitting a little more relaxed and enjoying the music. That's shalom. That's the concept of, of, of harmony, of peace, coming through your external and your internal world and your relationship with God being ordered. You sort of take that feeling. Most of us live in this perpetual sense of slightly out of whack trying to pull our lives out of tension and out of discord into harmony, and uh, imagine that the areas of your family life and your work and your calling sort of coming into tune, coming into rhythm, resolving. That's the shalom that God intends for his people. It's the shalom actually he intended for all of humanity. It's the state we were living in until we broke the harmony of the garden with our own discordant music, refusing to play the music the creator had written for us and writing our own vain and prideful melodies, uh, creating instead what one author calls a sea of turbulent sound, broken harmony and discord. But God wants to bring the harmony, the shalom, back. In fact, that's the whole story of the Bible is the story of God bringing back to earth the harmony he originally intended for it, in it, and between it and him. For us to come back into tune with our creator, move again to the rhythm that he established for us in a small way that is foreshadowed and highlighted here in Jeremiah 29 in this this letter as God is the main actor bringing shalom back to his people in this letter that's not coming for a while 70 years Seventy years, Jeremiah says, then comes the climax, then then the beginning of of the resolution, the solution to the problem of exile. Seventy years, and then God will start to bring his people back into line, back into tune, back into harmony uh, with him. Seventy years. Then, and only then, will the people begin to return to him. You know, the timing of the return, the 70 years, this is what I love about it, is not dependent on the people turning back to God, but they will turn back to God. In these 70 years. That's what we're told. The nation will begin to turn back to God and he will begin to bring them back from exile. And that resolution then comes through. This sense of, of harmony returning in verse 14 in what I already read. I will restore your fortunes, gather you from all the nations and all the places. All the places where I've driven you. I will bring you back. I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you from exile. Two competing stories. Two different ways of looking at their current situation. Recap, the two stories. One is Hananiah the false prophet telling a fearful and reclusive people, don't worry, two years, you'll be back. Our king will be back. Babylon will be over. We'll be a free people again. If that's the story you're living under as a refugee, as an exile in a foreign land, it makes sense. Huddle up, wait it out. It's only two years. But the other story, Jeremiah's competing or opposing story, is that God's going to take 70 years to overthrow Babylon, and before they will be allowed to go back, before there will be a return from the exile, and that that return will be more than just physical and material. It will be spiritual as well. If that's the story you're living under, then his commands make sense. Build, plant, marry, multiply, prepare. You're going to be there for a while. There's going to be at least two or three generations brought up in exile, and we got to prepare them not just to live in exile, but to go home when the exile is over. You know, the decisions we make and the actions we take today depend on what story we think we're in and where we think that story is going. So what does that mean for being winsome? What does that mean for being informed and winsome ambassadors you know, earlier I defined winsome as the the posture we're supposed to take towards the world around us and we'll spend the next three weeks digging into specifics of that practical ways that being winsome works out in the world and then we'll wrap up this entire series with a nice big bow on uh, May 13th it'll be our Mother's Day gift to you But our posture toward the world, our winsomeness, is important, and it is absolutely dictated by the story that we think we're in. Jewish exiles who were in a two-years-and-I'm-home-again story had sequestered themselves, siloed themselves into a ghetto of safety that would help them endure until the end. Jeremiah told a different story, a story that gives a different meaning, a different direction to their lives. In that story, they'll be in Babylon for quite a while, so get busy building, planting, multiplying. And you could look at those activities as even still internally focused. that is sort of a long-term bunker down. But because it's paired with more externally focused activities, seek the shalom, the welfare of the city, God says. Pray on its behalf. For in its welfare, in its shalom, you will find your shalom. Those are externally focused activities. One commentator has written that nowhere else in ancient Near Eastern literature is a religious people group commanded to pray and work for the peace of their non religious or anti religious captors. Nowhere else does this this type of activity show up in the literature of the age. It's absolutely revolutionary. It's a radically new posture to take towards an outside and opposing force. Pray for the city in which you find yourself in exile. Seek the peace of the city. Work for it. Pray for it to prosper. Jeremiah is saying, don't silo in. Don't bunker down. Don't huddle up and pray for its destruction. Don't sit around saying, woe is me. Babylon is such a pagan place. How am I ever going to live here? He gives them a... Different way of looking at it, a different way of posturing themselves towards pagan Babylon, a way that does not feel natural if you're in a two years and then I'm home again story. Because, like I've said, the decisions we make, the actions we take today depend on the story we think we're in and where we think that story is going. In other words, we're not going to know how to posture ourselves to the world around us, how to be winsome, until we're living within a story that shows us the proper posture. So that brings us, of course, to application. How do we posture ourselves to the world around us? What do we do with a story like Jeremiah 29? How do we be winsome? Now, obviously, we could take this idea that the decisions and actions we take today depend on the story we think we're in. We could apply that to ourselves individually individually. And ask ourselves the, the questions, you know, do I see myself as the main character of the story or is God the main character of the story? What story am I telling myself about myself? Is it true? Is it not true? If it's not true, why do I believe it to be true? What is the true story? Where do I find it? How do I develop it? What community do I get involved in that also believes that true story? If you didn't have a chance to write all that down, you can catch that in the recording later, sorry. Because that's not the point of the sermon this morning. It's not to apply it individually, but for the purposes of this sermon series, to talk about us as a church, us collectively, us all, we all. How do we, together, posture ourselves towards the world around us? Because how the church postures itself to the world depends on what story we think the church is playing and who the main character in the church's story is. So let me give you some examples of ways we could think of the world around us. And these stories all come from my own life and experience. I grew up within a church that said, God is going to come back any day and rescue us, we faithful few, from all the trials and tribulations of the world. So bunker down, huddle up, keep yourself pure until Jesus comes back. You really don't want him to come back and catch you in a movie theater or making out with your girlfriend. So stay pure and wait. And we sang songs like, this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. And just a few more weary days, and then I'll fly away, and I'm out of here. And because stories have consequences, what I learned from that story was there's really no reason to be involved in the world around me other than to shout out it, hey, you're dying, I'm living, come with me. And that the world only existed to pull me out of the lifeboat back into the ocean and drown me in a sea of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. That was the 90s. I'm not sure what it was in the aughts, but... That's what the world was there for, to, to keep me from going to heaven by committing, you know, the big sins. When I got to college, I, I learned a not really a new story, but I was given another layer to that story. And that layer was that uh, God had chosen me. Out of everyone he could have chosen, he picked me. And I must be some pretty hot stuff for him to have picked me. Now that was never said, but it was implied. Uh, it was implied that God chose us because he knew uh, you know, we would have fidelity of doctrine, we would be morally pure, all these other things. And, and so not only did we not have any real reason to go out into the world around us, we also withdrew from other Christians who didn't believe the same things that we did. They were obviously wrong. We couldn't trust them. We did things like pass out gospel pamphlets at basketball games to the players and families from other Christian colleges who were not in our denomination because we couldn't trust, you know, they might be Methodist, we couldn't trust that they were actually saved. No offense to the Methodists. We, we put any denomination <laughs> into that blank. Uh, we couldn't trust that they, uh, they were saved. So we, um, we were pretty, you know, we were, we were pretty religious about it. We broke fellowship with people who refused to break fellowship with other people we had broken fellowship with, <laughs> which is a very never-ending recursive thing you end up in. Well, in my personal story then, we can fast forward to seminary, and, and thankfully in seminary I began to unlearn some of these stories about the church's role and who the church is. I realized, there, yes, there was some truth in those stories. We are waiting for the realization of our hope in heaven, but that doesn't mean we bunker ourselves. It means we go out into the world knowing that God is going to redeem it. I learned also you know, that, yes, God chose me. But if that makes me proud, then I have no idea how deeply my sin cost him to choose me. Being chosen should have made me humble and grateful, not arrogant and offensive. But while I was in seminary and in the subsequent years immediately after, there was a pretty big shift in the political climate in the United States. Christians who were used to thinking of themselves in the majority and thinking of the country as essentially Christian began to realize that confessional Christianity is, in fact, a minority group. We began to feel ourselves personally attacked as we realized that less and less people thought as we did and believed as we did. And some of those people instituted changes to laws and societal structures that uh, we felt were contrary to what we believed led to a flourishing society. And suddenly, an optimistic confessional Christianity became a fearful and anxious Christianity. Because, you know, a lot of the way we act and a lot of the decisions we make are based on what story we think we're part of and where we think that story is going. And we maybe forgot the story we were in and had adopted a different one. Now, were the Jewish exiles waiting for deliverance? Yeah, but that wasn't supposed to make them withdrawn and moralistic. Were they God's chosen people? Yeah, but it wasn't supposed to make them arrogant and offensive. Were they, in fact, a beleaguered minority in a largely pagan host culture? Yeah, but that wasn't supposed to make them fearful and anxious. The Jewish exiles needed to be reminded they live inside of a bigger story of grace and covenant, of promise and blessing. And in their exile, they were given a vocation, not a new one, but the same calling they had had in a new context. Uh, They were to, to mediate the sovereign rule of God to the people around them. That's the seek the welfare of the city, part of Jeremiah's commands, and Mediate the hopes and the aspirations of the people around them to God. That's the pray to God for the peace of the city, pray to the Lord on its behalf. Well, what about us? How do Orthodox Christians in a modern secular world live? What story are are we living under? Do we see ourselves as simply waiting for heaven and God's judgment on the world around us? If so, we will tend to be increasingly withdrawn and moralistic. Do we see ourselves as God's chosen ones, those he will preserve against mighty pagan forces? Then we'll become arrogant and offensive. Do we see ourselves as a beleaguered minority under attack from an increasingly secular world around us? then we will tend towards being fearful and anxious. Now, like I said, there is a little bit of truth in each of those stories, but when that one little bit of truth becomes the whole story, then we miss the actual story God has for us. Do we see ourselves as a people temporarily in exile? waiting to return to the home for which we were created, but to which none of us have ever been. We're living today with a vocation, with a a calling to work within the world around us, the place where God has sent us, to help it flourish within God's original design and to pray on behalf of the world and its peace to God. That's a different Story as radically different as Jeremiah's 70 years was from the two years story. See, the exiles were waiting for God's decisive action in history, they were waiting for God to step in and, and once and for all free them from slavery to an outside foreign and opposing force. That should sound familiar because we Christians on this side of the cross have already experienced God's decisive action in history in which he stepped in and freed us from an outside opposing force. The power of of sin and death in our lives has freed us from our exile of sin and death to a future home that we are waiting to go to. We are not a beleaguered minority, fearful and anxious, waiting for heaven so God can rescue us, self-righteously congratulating ourselves for uh, the fact that God chose us as if it had anything to do with us, and withdrawing from everyone around us who's not like us. That is not our story. Our story is the chosen people of Jesus Christ who who took exile on our behalf so that we would never be permanently exiled, who left the shalom of heaven so that we would find it one day, And it's only that story, it's only that story, I contend, that will give us the resources to not be withdrawn, aloof, antagonistic, self-righteous, fearful, and anxious, but instead to be sacrificial and compassionate, to pursue the world and the people we know in it, to identify with the world and the people we know in it, the people we used to be, and to sacrificially offer life to the world. Through love. I know it's a lot easier to judge and condemn. It's more fun, too. It's a lot easier to withdraw. It's a lot easier to be fearful and anxious and arrogant and antagonistic. But to do so is to give up our place in the story and live for something less. So what story are you living in? Is it the biblical story of... Our calling to pray for and seek the welfare of the city to which God has sent us? Or are we living in the story of fear, the fear shouted all around us, the story of a beleaguered minority of self-righteous chosen ones waiting for heaven? Which story are you hearing reinforced over and over and over again through the preaching that you sit under, the voices that you listen to, the attitudes you pick up from the community around you? Which story gives you the resources to compassionately pursue and identify with and sacrificially love the world God has called us to? Father, you are good in that you have not just given us a command. And you have not just given us a story. You have given us the one who perfectly lived the same vocation you have called us to. To work for the good of those around us, to pray on their behalf, to be a mediator between you and the world and between the world and you, just as Christ, our older brother, our Savior, mediates between us and you. You have called us to sacrificially love for the world around us. Not that our love or our sacrifice will save the world somehow, but it does point in some small way as a a foretaste, as a flavoring of what you have already done for us. Help us to live in light of the story you have told and are telling about the church in this world. Let us live with the courage to be compassionate and winsome. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.